I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Jason. He has OCD. Let's talk about it. Well, this is really fun. We're, we're hanging out with uh, Jason Adams, uh, uh, old buddy. We go way back, Acadia days, you know, like <laughs> fucking uh, way back at uh, oh. that university that I don't remember a single day. Of. We're, we're never going to get anything done if we start going through those stories, man. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Jason, uh, excited to have you on the show. Um, yeah. we're, we're talking about something that we're kind of familiar with. We literally just recorded an episode with someone who... Uh, who has Tourette's, but also OCD is a big part of their life. And I know that uh, that's the big reason we have you here is mm. to talk about uh, your experience with OCD, um, but also what it's like to be a parent um, and, and dealing with OCD. And correct me if I'm wrong, I, 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 I might be remembering this wrong, but um, your OCD diagnosis, that, that came sort of recently, right? Like this is, this is something that sort of came along uh, literally around the same time that you, you brought children into this world? Yeah. It's only a little bit younger than, than my boys are. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, in 2019, July, 2019, uh, my wife and I had twins, uh, twin boys, um, happy, healthy boys. And so they're a little over two and a half now. Uh, but yeah, within a few months, uh, and, and there's kind of a story preceding all that, but within a few months, I also had a diagnosis of OCD. Yeah, quite uh, cl- Clinical OCD is the, the kind of technical term. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the next couple of years, it was a process of um, figuring out family life and figuring out mental health therapy all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's <laughs> led us to this conversation today. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious uh, uh, to get into how you, you've you were diagnosed with clinical OCD, but before um, that, are your twins identical or fraternal? Uh, they're fraternal. Yeah. So okay. one uh, looks, uh, Theodore looks exactly like I did as a kid. And uh, Hayden looks exactly like um, sort of my wife's dad and some of my wife's baby pictures, both of them. They both look alike. And then Hayden looks exactly like them. So yeah, very much one of each. And their personalities, cool. oddly enough, are One's kind of 70-30 me and my wife, and the other one is 70-30 my wife and me. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Brian, Brian, why don't, you, why don't you tell Jason what you call nah, fraternal nah, it's, twins? It's okay. Uh, we don't have go to go into it. No, 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 no. Go, go into it. it. Go into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Brian. Gonna, yeah, Brian. I, I, got yeah, in trouble, I got in trouble for asking. That, well, I didn't get in trouble, but I, I sort of picked a fight at a at a yoga, <laughs> at a yoga getaway that, <laughs> that Taylor I was hosted. Running. And uh, there was a, a young couple there who had just had kids, and, and, and I said uh, – they said they had twins and, and I'm a twin. Um, I'm an identical twin. And I said, yeah. were they real twins or fake twins? <laughs> and uh, it turns out they were fake twins. So I now, I now don't ask that question like that. Dude, this anymore. was like a, this was like a, 
This was like, uh, if, I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, but like, you know how in Curb, yeah, in Curb, Larry, Larry says things and everyone kind of like scrunches their eyebrows and looks at him like he's like, what the fucking, fuck is wrong with like you? He's fucking yeah. crazy. Yeah. And this was one of these moments. It was where like, was that, like yeah. are they real or fake twins? And it was like, excuse me. And I really doubled down on it too. I was like, oh no, your twins are fake. <laughs> like I was like, you probably shouldn't even refer to them as twins anymore. But oh no. Any, anyway, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's there's so much to unpack there. Starting a fight at a yoga retreat over <laughs> over uh, the real or, fake, real or fake twins. And the thing is, twins run in my wife's family. I believe our boys are within three generations. They're the seventh set of twins, if I'm not mistaken. Oh so, my yeah. god, so, yeah, you're crazy. So I I my I was surprised we were having twins. And my wife wasn't surprised in the least, but yeah, wow. yeah. you had cool. nothing to do with it. Yeah, it was, it was, that was happening regardless. Like yeah, yeah. Something, I guess. Well, <laughs> to to get into the um, diagnosis, um, yeah. well, like a couple months after you you had kids, you come across this diagnosis. Where it was like, tell us about that. How did how did that come to be? Yeah. So in in retrospect, it it's one of those. So one of the things with. OCD, like people always ask kind of where does it come from? What causes it? And the research is, is developing on that. It's not, it's not hard and fast conclusive. Uh, but one of the theories out there right now seems to be uh, that some people are maybe predisposed for it. Some of the wiring is already in place neurologically. And then throughout a person's life, either medically or due to circumstances, you can have what's called an onset incident. And what that can do is basically trigger circuitry that was maybe there and already manifesting in the first place. And at the moment, for me, that seems to be what makes the most sense. It, it, it evolves, really. Mm. But um, I, it's funny. I've listened back to a couple of the folks you had on here with OCD, and they all talk about, I had all these sort of idiosyncrasies as a kid, eccentricities as a mm. kid. And at the time either be, you know, in my case, I was still largely a functional kid, but I had a lot of those little eccentricities, but a lot of mine were internal. It's pretty good at hiding them. Um, and as I got older, I would say they actually got worse, but my coping mechanisms were still relatively strong. So throughout my twenties, I mean, I had a lot of the, you know, quote, typical markers of success. Uh, you know, I've been to university, I have a master's of teaching job, all this kind of stuff. Um, but what people wouldn't see was a lot of these uh, sort of internal obsessions and compulsions going on. Mm. And they also wouldn't see me sleeping for two, three days at a time over a long weekend because when I was a bachelor, I had nobody to answer to. And then once I had kids, um, a sleep deprivation just took right over. And we'll talk about that in a second mm. too, because I think that's a huge factor with any, uh, with any mental health disorder. Uh, but then the second thing was that, you know, you sort of take, OCD wiring with the emotions of a parent plus raising twins plus sleep deprivation and just bam, uh, I really mm. bottomed out on a lot of things. And I mm. was just really starting to lose patience, stability, um, and, and even just the self-esteem of it all, trying to be a good dad when your boys are first born and knowing that you're struggling, but also seeing that your wife who is learning to nurse twins, isn't getting any sleep herself, is recovering from delivering babies, you know, all these things kind of swirl around. And I eventually went to a psychologist and I just said, I don't know what's going on here. I, I can't figure this out. And he was one of those guys who just kind of kind of closed his eyes, nodded, wrote down a book title on a piece of paper and said, go buy this, come back in two weeks and let's talk. And the book was Overcoming OCD mm. by uh, Jonathan Abramowitz. And I was like, what? OCD? And he said, just go read it and come back. And then went from there. Were you uh -huh. expecting him to say it like, you, you know, 
did did you have a something else in mind? Were you you know were you thinking? Like, I, I have a feeling it's probably like generalized anxiety or, so, or something like that, or or like were you just totally in the dark as to what could possibly be going on? You know what? I, I would never say that I had never heard of OCD, but I would just say my understanding of it was as developed as anybody else's would be that had never really come across it. So, you know, like I, I know that, I mean, there are lots of folks that, that hate the phrases like I'm so OCD and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And the thing is for me, like, but I don't, I don't hold that against anyone because I remember being like that. Like I remember having that level of understanding of it mm-hmm. and I would never have made light of anybody's condition. That's not the point. It's just that, you know, when you can when you can make comments like that and not really understand what they mean, to me that just implies a lack of understanding. It doesn't yeah. mean you're a jerk or whatever. So, mm-hmm. I know I I would say actually that that was a big part of um, kind of the uh, the despair of it all was that like I I didn't know yeah I, I didn't I didn't know what was going on I I and again I was so confused because having kids is supposed to be this joyous life altering occasion and it mm. certainly is. But I wasn't happy those yeah, first couple of months. Yeah. And it was nothing to do with my boys. I love my boys, man. Like, uh, nothing to do with them. It's just the circumstances around it and what was going on in my head. Um, I could not figure it out. And mm-hmm. I had been to therapy once before. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 26, which in some ways you have a lot of faculties to deal with it. And in some ways you don't. And I remember going to a therapist at that point and just saying, I'm angry about this. I can't figure it out. I've tried working out. <laughs> I've tried. I've tried everything. I can't get this out of my head. Why am I still angry? And that really worked at that time. Um, mm. the, the therapist did some really helpful uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with me. And I thought, well, it helped me through that when I couldn't figure things out. Why don't I go back now and try? Mm. And um, that mm. in combination with a, a conversation with my wife about just, uh, look, something's got to change. She had noticed it in me too. She's like, just what is going on with you? And I said, I don't know. And then mm. that's, mm-hmm. that's what we came about. In, in terms of like, to, to even go back to, to your twenties, when you were talking about like going, you know, sometimes two or three days at a, at a time without sleeping. Um, I, I, I really picked up on that because I, I, you guys might be tired of hearing me talk about this now, but I've been seeing a therapist for the past year and, and learning about, um, my experience in, in, dealing with like living with ADHD mm-hmm. and um, I can really get into like these periods of hyperfixation where I'll stay up really, really late at night. And when you mentioned being a bachelor um, during that time, like my, my, uh, my girlfriend, uh, I, we were dating long distance for a really long time and she's been away for the last uh, month. And I find that when she's away there, like there are, there's sort of these behaviors that I'll, I'll fall into of like, you know, staying up super late at night and getting into these like really unhealthy routines, I, th- I think, um, for myself. And so I'm wondering, like when you were staying awake for sometimes two or three days at a time, what, what does, what did that look like for you? Uh, so, and, and to be clear, so there'd be times where I'd be awake and there'd also be times where I would just do want to do nothing but sleep for a couple yeah. of days too. Right. So was, I, I would have times where I couldn't sleep at all. And then times where I'd want to sleep for two, three days. So, uh, the times it, it's less of a problem now. And I'm sure that having toddlers has something to do with this, but I, I don't struggle to fall asleep too much anymore. Although I occasionally do still have incidents with it, but honestly it would be, um, so back then before I knew any, uh, before I had any strategies for managing it it would be a matter of just resorting to the same old things to try and tire myself out or shut my brain down. I'd try and laze about in front of the TV. 
Um, occasionally I would just kind of get up, walk around. Sometimes it would just be laying there zoning out at the ceiling, honestly. Uh, mm -hmm. There would be times as well where it would be what I call just really uh, unproductive like you know you, you know that st people talk about that state of flow where like you're doing something and you're so engrossed in it that you lose track of time yeah. and that's supposed to be one of the ways that people learn things really well well that would be things for me where i would lose track of time and waste a lot of time and flow kind of the the, the anti-flow you know what I mean? yeah. Um, yeah. that's that's what it would look like uh for me at those various times and then the the times where i'd want to sleep for an entire weekend see what that looked like was Again, it was very important to me to to stay functional as much as I possibly could. And uh, some of my obsessions and compulsions are mental. And that's one thing that people don't always know about OCD is that um, there are physical compulsions, certainly. But it's, it's, it's a whole series of just kind of like maladaptive reactions to very individualized threats, perceived mm. threats, right? And... So in my case, like to give you an example, uh, like I'm a teacher, I'd be at school and um, if I, you know, there, there'd be water fountains for staff and stuff like that. And I had a thing for a long time where I had to take four sips from the water fountain. And if not, I got something that is what we would just call this, the just not right feeling. Something's mm. wrong. What is it? I don't know, but something's wrong. And for me, my compulsion to manage that would be to walk away from the water fountain and come back and take four sips again. But in a school setting, you can only do that so much before people start to look and wonder what's going on. <laughs> or you got a class, you got to go teach or whatever. So for me, I just had mental phrases. It's okay. It's okay. See, it's okay. It's fine. It's okay. And then I'd have to shove that all down mm. because I had a class to teach. And the class energy took over. I always did my job. It was fine. But that was exhausting. So yeah. I get home at the, end of a at the end of a Friday, and I've been spending 50% more mental energy than a lot of other people because I'm fighting down all that stuff and I don't want it to get in the way of my job or whatever else. And I would have no energy to do anything except again, like the anti-flow or just yeah. that, so that's uh, what it looked like for me. That feeling of that feeling of uh, that not right feeling that yeah. you mentioned. Um, is there ever, is there ever a, is there ever a time with, uh, with your experience and you also, you, you, you seem like you, you know, you've, you've done, a, you've done, you, you really have engrossed yourself in the subject as well. Um, and know quite a bit outside of yourself in terms of the condition. Um, is there ever a time with OCD where you get that feeling, but you don't know what's causing the feeling yet, yet? Like you almost like there's a discovery, like, how do you get to the place where it is, where you know that it is the water and the amount of sips that you take that causes that feeling? So that, that's a really good question. It actually, so that connection that you're hearing there, like that I made between those two things, like kind of trigger response, right? I mean, and again, different books call them different things, but it's, it's essentially a trigger. Um, so that's something that I've come to be able to do easily with the help of exposure and response prevention therapy, ERP. I think a couple of your other guests have mentioned that before. Um, and then also through cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. And what a lot of that comes down, comes from is, is journaling. So writing out an incident and then coming back and reading it again after a couple of days and noticing patterns that you didn't notice. I mean, I always tell people it's very hard to think a thought and think about that thought at the same time. But when you get it down on paper and you leave it for a couple of days, 
Um, you know, the few times that I would do papers in advance in university, I would always notice, you know, if I came back and edited a couple of days later, you always spot things that you didn't see back when you were writing it. It's the same type of thing. So partially that. Um, and then as far as noticing the feelings themselves, going back to that point about the triggers being quite individualized, honestly, it was just that they happened often enough that I started just picking up on the consistency of it. Mm. I, I, I would, I would say I didn't, I've never really suffered from kind of a generalized, like something's wrong and I don't know what. It's more, for example, um, I've been driving home through neighborhoods before and uh, I've gone over a speed bump or a lump of ice on the road and I'll say like, something's wrong. And what is it that made me feel like something's wrong? It's like, oh, well, uh, that, that bump made you feel like something's wrong. And with practice, I learned to articulate, well, that bump made me scared that I had hit somebody and killed them and driven off. And then somebody had spotted my license plate and called and reported me to the police. So now I had to sit here and wait for the police. And I could picture the tape and the sirens and losing my license and my job. Like, that's what kind of the spiral of OCD sounds like, right? Mm -hmm. But again, you drive home enough, you hit enough bumps and you feel that feeling mm -hmm. pop up. You start to realize like, oh, that's where it's coming from. Okay. That it doesn't mean that you know, you, you accept it or think it's rational or like it or anything, but just a combination of consistency and then noticing some of the harder to tackle ones through the, the writing and therapy process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. th those two things. Mm -hmm. I, I'm um, just kind of rewinding to something you said earlier um, about like in terms of uh, people who, who aren't like fully aware of what OCD is and, and, and oftentimes, you know, I think everybody has either heard and or said like, Oh, I'm, I'm just so OCD today. Or like my, you know, that's my OCD acting up. And when really they, they don't have OCD and hmm. it's, you know, they just, they just, it was like a thing that they did. And it, it's a very, like very throwaway term. That's or being particular. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so for folks that like maybe are new listeners to the podcast, they haven't heard pre previous episodes on OCD. Can you give us just like a, a sort of breakdown um, uh, for someone who doesn't know what it's all about? What, like, what is OCD? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, I, and, and it speaks to two things. So I, I hear this a lot. Um, like one of the things you mentioned is that you, you can have a trait associated with a mental health disorder, mm. but it doesn't mean you have that mental health disorder. And that, that's a really important point because, you know, I, for me, it comes down to kind of frequency and severity of symptoms. Um, like you, you, got, you mentioned ADHD before. Um, that's one that I hear people associate with all the time. And that's, uh, again, that, that kind of misclassifying of symptoms. I've heard people use that to dismiss ADHD as a diagnosis altogether. It's like, well, everybody loses stuff. Everybody forgets things. Everybody can't settle their brain once in a while. It's like, mm -hmm. that's true. Absolutely. But think of it on a spectrum, right? Mm. In terms of optimal functioning versus... <laughs> suboptimal functioning right and that's mm -hmm. so for ocd think of it this way um so ocd again I, I i i've really come to like the phrase it's it's a mental health disorder where you react very maladaptively to unwanted intrusive thoughts that everybody has but that the ocd brain um really spirals on in in unhealthy, unproductive ways. So again, mm. it's, it's, it's a set of maladaptive reactions to highly individualized triggers. So think of it this way. Um, say you're cooking chicken on the counter, right? Everybody's brain has a threat response system built in. So you're cooking chicken, you notice some chicken juice on the counter, right? You say to your, you know, there's a part of your brain, I forget the exact uh, name of it, but 
there's a threat response in your brain there. It's kind of an emotional thing where your brain says, oh, there's bacteria in that chicken juice. You got to clean that up. That sends a message to the action part of your brain, which says, all right, reach into the cupboard, get some spray and a cloth, wipe it up. Right. And then there's another part of your brain that after that action is over, sends a signal back to the emotion part of your brain that says, okay, threat resolved. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Done. That's a very normal response. Right. Uh, and in a neurotypical brain, that's exactly what happens for someone with OCD. If we're talking about something to do with contamination, it would be something like this chicken juice. Okay. Threat response. Yep. Clean up that chicken juice. You clean it. That emotional threat response keeps going, right? Mm. Keeps going. It's like, you're, so the rational part of your brain is going, I cleaned it up. Yeah, but there could still be some there. No, I cleaned it up. Yeah, but there could be some there. And then if your mom who's immunocompromised touches that and dies, you could be in a lot of trouble and the police are going to find out. Yeah, but I cleaned it up. Yeah, but your mom could get that and you don't want your mom to die. Do you clean it again? And so you clean it again. Mm. All right. The threat is resolved. No, it's not. Keep going. All right, the threat is resolved. No, it's not. Keep going. And you, <laughs> you see what I mean? And you yeah. just keep that. That's really like what the cycle of OCD is. So again, you can see like the trigger, which is like, you know, in this case, the chicken juice. For me, it was any number of random things, which I'm happy to share with you if you want a few laughs. But um, <laughs> but uh, that whole thing of this has created a threat doesn't matter. You know, part of you knows the threat is irrational, but there's another big part of you that needs to resolve it. Um and again, there's that phrase of like only certainty will do when it comes to resolving those threats, right? And until you have absolute assurance that that threat is resolved, your brain is going to keep going into that cycle. And that's where compulsions kick in. That anxiety gets so severe that you're going, I got to do something to make myself mm. feel better here. And that might be that repetitive cleaning, because even though part of you feels really bad doing the cleaning over and over, that doesn't feel nearly as bad as if you leave that threat unresolved and wait for it to play right, out, right? right? So again, it's that cycle of trigger, maladaptive reaction, and just over and over and over and over again. And and when when I when I when when it's like you you articulate that really really well, and uh, and when those when those um, voices or those parts of your brain are separated in the example that you give so clearly, in the way that the way that it's described that they are two different entities talking back and forth to each other. And one is kind of dominating the other. Yeah. Um, how do you, because when, when you struggle with something in your mind like that, do, do you, do you perceive them as two entities or is the, is the inherent challenge of it that they are wrapped into one and it all sounds like it's the same thing and there is no separation of the two. Yeah, you, you know what? You just phrased it perfectly, man. Like it's in the early going without the help of uh, my psychologist, shout out to Dr. Jones, Dr. Rowe and Dr. Dunkley. Um, but uh, they, uh, without their help, um, I, I couldn't distinguish between the two. You learn to distinguish between the two. And one of the biggest things is um, like intrusive thoughts are, are normal. Um, there was, I, I, and I'm sorry, I forget which one of you mentioned it, but you um in the in one of your previous episodes, I was laughing because this was one of mine. Somebody mentioned, uh, "Don't step on a crack, or you'll break your mother's back, or whatever yeah. it was." Yeah. Who, who was that? I'm sorry, I, I think forget. I think that was me. I, yeah, I had a thing like that growing up. <laughs> yeah. But but you phrased it perfectly. You said, you know, and I thought that for maybe five minutes. I thought, whatever, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And then, and then you went on with your day. Um, so that's the two, that's the two brains right there. That's the two parts of the brain kind of going threat, threat, threat. But then the other part mm -hmm. going like, ah, that's not rational. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, so for, but for me, 
that part about the threat being there, it just, it feels like, you know, physically, it feels like that sensation in your chest when you're nervous, maybe before you're about to like make a presentation or go on stage or something like that. Um, you know, your muscles get tense, your brain mm-hmm. gets into again, almost that anti-flow state, uh, stuff like that. So yeah, you, again, you, you gradually become aware of those things, but the other thing that, that, you know, I think people with OCD or at least myself, I can't speak for everyone with OCD, but one of the things like we often don't know is that intrusive thoughts are normal. And you don't know that about intrusive thoughts. You don't know, again, like a really good example for me, one of mine was, um, again, there are lots of different categories of intrusive thoughts. One of them is fear of causing harm, right? So you are afraid that you yourself are going to cause harm somehow. So for example, say you're, you're stopped at a red light, light turns green, some teenage kid sprints out in front of you, cuts you off, and you got to slam on your brakes in the middle of an intersection. You know, frustrating thing. There's probably the odd person out there who thought I'd like to get out of the car and just like <laughs> deck that kid or whatever, right? <laughs> and, you know, a neurotypical person, they might be like, oh, I'm having a bad day. Ah, that'd be funny. Obviously, I'm not going to do that kind of thing. Somebody with OCD is going to have an intrusive thought, not know that it's a normal part of the human psyche, that we just have all this good and bad flowing through our heads. And they're going to go, oh, my God, I'm a psychopath. I'm a sociopath. I'm going to punch a teenager. Why would I punch a teenager? And then you get into this thing of like, it's OK. It's OK. I'm not. And one of your compulsions might be to like call your girlfriend and say, I'm not a violent person, am I? Or it might be to, you know, just kind of work yourself down with it. It might be that you want to redrive through that intersection without that thought to neutralize the bad thought. Mm. Right. So until you learn to gain some distance and perspective on those two sides. They're just, they're, they're, they're pushing back and forth, but they're right up against each other. So yeah. you, you can't even really tell. Yeah. What, what are, what are some of the compulsions that you have faced? Like, you know, whether that be pre-diagnosis or, or after your diagnosis? Yeah. Uh, so, so one of mine, I have a lot, I had um, a lot of what are called neutralizing rituals. Okay. So picture, um, what was the one that I, Sounds like well, a spell. I, I, Sounds like spells. Yeah. Like you're, you're a yeah. spellcaster. I've got some neutralizing rituals that I do yeah. to keep ward the keep those spirits at at bay. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, so one was say you're walking, you're going into a shopping mall, and um, you you go to open the door, and somebody barges through the door, and as you're walking through the door, you think, I I don't know, some terrible thought about the person, you know, I don't know, jerk that person's an idiot, that person, whatever. And you, you have this thought, you think to yourself, oh God, that's not me. And, uh, you know, and all of a sudden you have these, it's an intrusive thought. You start to associate it with who you might be. That's not the person you want to be. You start to flash forward to picturing yourself being this awful person. And in some cases I walk right back out of the mall and walk back in that same door, forcing myself Mm. not to have that thought Mm. so that that incident with that intrusive thought isn't out in the world anymore, Mm. (laughs) right? So that I've neutralized it. I've walked through there with an intrusive thought, but now I'm going to walk there forcing myself to only think happy thoughts Mm -hmm. so that now I'm kind of square with the universe again, right? That's an example. Um, I had a lot about, uh, let's see here. I had one actually, um, trying to think of a few more that are really relevant here. Um, I had a lot, oddly enough, around the types of sounds and the types of words I was using when I talk. So I would get that just not right feeling if I didn't use enough words with an R sound in them or um, when I was, yeah, when I, it, when I was writing and again, remember I mentioned the highly individualized bit. I'm an utter word nerd, right, man. Like I, yeah. I love words. I love language. I love script writing dialogue, the whole thing. So it's kind of no surprise, right? OCD does that. Um, OCD is actually known for um, they're called ego dystonic thoughts. So essentially what that means is it targets the things that, 
you kind of love and value the most, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, there's the emotional value, obviously. I mean, I'm not emotionally attached to words, but it's something I'm really into. And again, speaking to the parenting thing, that's one of the things that made it so hard. But even when I was writing, um, I'd have to rewrite a sentence a certain way. Um, I would have, uh, gosh, what else? Um, trying to think. Oh, I can remember being a kid and um, around grade, you know, five, six, kids start to discover swear words. And so we're all swearing on the playground thinking we're, we're like the big kids and everything. And then I can remember, though, I would swear along with my buddies. But as we were walking in, I would sneak off into a corner and pray for forgiveness for swearing or apologize to one of my dead relatives for swearing. And I'm not I'm not a religious person, per se. But I would still do it. I'd go and make a cross. Mm. I'd pray for forgiveness. Then I'd feel better. And then I'd go back to class. So, you know, any uh, any number of things like that. And I like mentioning those because they probably I don't think they're the more typical ones. You know, it's mm. not the compulsive hand washing. It's not the sorting your bookshelves. Mm. It's more, again, just like you have a perceived threat that you've done something wrong or that something is wrong. And you go to these very compulsive lengths to try and mm. neutralize it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, th- I think one of the one of the things that's fascinating me <clears throat> most right now about this conversation and 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 your situation in particular, Jason, is the the idea of your of of having children and mm. and what the and what having children, what impact having children can have on um, your rationality. Because I. I am about to have a baby within the next like any day now. And, hey, congratulations! Uh, thank yeah. you. And uh, and I and I've noticed over the past, I'm 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 rational to a fault, and um, and I've noticed over the past couple of months that my rationality is a is is a little bit, it, like it's slipping a little bit. Like every yeah. now and then, I find yeah. and and. You know, an intrusive thought here and there. We were at the movie the other night. We went to see uh, Uncharted. And at some point in the movie, I just started thinking, and, you know, adventure movie, the super high risk, a, a thousand opportunities to fall out of a plane or get hit by a car, whatever the fuck was going on. And I, and I slipped off into, a, into a, a side in my mind of me dying and, uh, and Kyla being alone with our baby. And like, and that was probably like a few that's minutes. Just not you. And that's not me at yeah. all. And I was like, I was also stoned. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, so I, Parallels so, are yeah. remarkable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, and, but like, I, but then I think that was kind of like the biggest part, the biggest example of that. But then that made me go, Oh, you know what? That's kind of been not that exact thing, but like, that inability or not those intrusive thoughts to, to just have a bit more bite than they typically Mm. do. I've noticed has increased a little bit in the, in knowing that this child is coming into my life that I have so much responsibility for and, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I'm not, it's not just me and it's not just, or it's not just me and my wife anymore. There's this new thing coming on. So I'm just, I, I think I'm just generally fascinated by the, the, the the correlation that you seem to have with with the the birth of your of your kid like did, did, is there is there anything wrapped up in that for you of of in terms of uh, those thoughts of of dependence and responsibility for your children and that sort of thing oh massively yeah and uh, you know and, and I can tell you as like a parent of two and a half year olds um, I noticed that in general, it changes your perspective when you're looking at just any event like that, even, um, you know, I don't, the, uh, with, with, with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now, when I first heard of that break, I had a full day of just feeling very melancholy, 
partially because it's just humans suffering in, in, in that kind of situation. But I also thought if there were tanks driving down my street, what would it be like for my boys? Like, mm. oh my gosh. And mm-hmm. I just related to it on such a different level. So I do think part of that is being a healthy, empathetic parent, uh, for sure. Um, but I think, yeah, what you're talking about there absolutely makes sense. And for me, um, OCD really attached to fear of harm and fear of being responsible for harm when it came to my boys big time. Uh, the, the worst ones for me, and again, going back to that ego dystonic thing, I was a lifeguard for 10 years. I love water. I just, I love, I love swimming, canoeing, anything, anything to do with water. I love. And when they were two months old, one month old, I was getting thoughts of them drowning. Mm. I, I was getting thoughts of them drowning and like struggling in the water and me not being able to save them and only being able to watch it from like a third, you know, a third eye, uh, third person perspective. Um, I also have struggled with a fear of heights for most of my life. And I was getting thoughts of them falling from heights. You know, like that scene in Lord of the Rings when like Frodo falls and the ring is about to land on his finger, but you see him like falling away from the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was picturing my sons doing that. And those thoughts just would not leave no matter what I did. And um, all those things, absolutely. And again, like I go back to that sort of, every parent has thoughts of those kinds of things happening. I was talking to my brother-in-law about it at one point, And he said to me like, oh gosh, absolutely. He said, I've had thoughts like that. He said, but part of me has gone like, well, we're not swimming right now. Like we're sitting on the ground floor of my house. So like, I mean, yeah, I don't like that thought, but like, I don't have to think it either. And in my head at the time, I'm kind of going like, what do you mean? You don't have to think it like, yeah. <laughs> I have to think it, think it with me. <laughs> you know, all kind of thing. I, I think it's really valuable to like normalize those intrusive, intrusive thoughts because I haven't heard yeah. th- this type of conversation. I don't, I don't think ever. And like, I also, I think as a human being experience intrusive, intrusive thoughts and intrusive thoughts are actually part of, um, ADHD as well, or can be, and, um, and, and for me, it's not, it's not something that is debilitating in in that sense, but I've had a lot of, I've had moments where like, I'll, I'll be walking down the street and, uh, I'll see a piece of garbage on the other side of the road Mm -hmm. and I'll think I should go and pick that up. And it's like completely out of my way and not on the other side of the, it's on the other side of the road. And then I'll keep walking and I'll think, oh man, you're such a piece of shit for not picking that up. Like, yeah. oh now, that's true. Now man. there's going to be some fucking karma that's going to come for you. And now, <laughs> yeah. because you didn't do that, now something bad is going to happen to you. And then I'll be walking still, and I might be five minutes past that. But then I feel the the emotion so strong that I have to turn around and walk all the way back, find that piece of garbage, then throw it out, and then I feel like I can move on. But it's not like if I didn't do that. I it wouldn't ruin it wouldn't the rest ruin of your day. my day like it yeah. wouldn't it wouldn't be something that would stick with me forever but yeah. like I've I've been in that space where I've I I could see how the next level of that would be do you, mm. do you remember the episode of Invisibilia with the guy who who was like holding a knife one day cutting up vegetables yeah. making dinner with his wife and he had an intrusive thought which was stabbing her. stabbing his wife yeah and he yeah. and he became he became petrified that he was going to, to murder his wife. Mm. And, he, and, and, uh, uh, I, I would, it's, I mean, invisibilia is a, a fascinating podcast. I'd highly recommend people going back and listening to that. Cause it's got a lot of parallels with this, mm. with this conversation in terms of, especially in terms of like intrusive thoughts and how you manage and, uh, perceive, uh, intrusive thoughts and, and sort of like what they are, because that big part of it was, 
what we what you were talking about earlier, Jason, is that intrusive thoughts are a very normal uh, aspect of the human brain, and it is it and when they occur, and I guess uh, conceptualizing or contextualizing them properly is sort of the is sort of the the, the part that can be challenging sometimes when when they oh, totally. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. So we're you know we're coming up on on three years now of of both the birth of your your sons and and your diagnosis, um, and I know that when you when you applied you had, you had mentioned that you know there there didn't seem to me to be many resources out there for for people living with mental disorders specifically um, kind of like surrounding parenting and how to, and how to manage that, how to manage parenting while living with, um, something like OCD. Um, and to, to, to the point where you just said, fuck it, I'm going to write my own book about it. Uh, which <laughs> is, which is called, uh, OC dad learning to be a parent with a mental health disorder. Um, what, in terms of, of getting your diagnosis around the same time as the, as the boys were born, and you, you know, you go to see, you go to see a, um, a specialist and you get that diagnosis. What were some of the things that you started to implement in your life that you might not have been doing in the past in order to manage, um, when, when things were getting, you know, obviously pretty, pretty intense for yourself? So that's a really good question. And I, I would, I would cite, uh, three things in particular, um, so, and I, and I want to make it clear too, if, if there's any parents listening, um, for the first few months that my boys were born, I wasn't, I, I couldn't do anything because I, I just didn't have the time or energy. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm preaching that, you know, you should be able to manage therapy and everything else in the midst of newborns. I mean, it's, it's a hectic time and I, yeah. I, I am, I am, uh, nowhere close to on par or superior with a lot of folks who manage that, you know, I struggled through and I don't want anyone to think I'm preaching something irrational here, but, um, but I would say three things. So the first thing is, um, well, the the first thing would be my my CBT exercises, cognitive behavioral therapy exercises. So a combination of doing those with my psychologist and then doing them at home. Um, I was doing those on a nightly basis, five, six nights a week. Uh, Literally, sometimes it's just paper and pencil worksheets. Uh, Sometimes it's a mental exercise. Sometimes it's reading about it, usually a combination of all three of those things. But after the boys were asleep, uh, I would sit at the kitchen table and I'd crank them out for 45 minutes to an hour. And there's a whole range of them. Uh, One of the ones that worked really well for me Uh, Well, actually, this is more about ERP, but there's one, for example, um, called the double standard. Uh, There's one called the double standard. So one of the obsessions I had around contamination uh, was was related to diaper changers. I wasn't worried about my contamination, but, um, you know, as you'll soon discover, when you're changing a newborn, they flop around and occasionally they kick their diaper or whatever. And if any part of what was in the diaper got on their hands or their feet, I would be worried they were going to contract hepatitis A for 
days and I would mm-hmm. need days until I would finally have my proof that they weren't ill. Well, what I, and, and then, so what I did with that was uh, that was a contamination obsession and the double standard basically says, okay, you, you were worried that when they touched this, they were going to get, you know, and, and you're certain that this is when it's going to happen. And what this exercise does is, okay, tell me all the other times when they've touched something less clean and they haven't gotten mm, sick. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, he did drop his soother and then I just let him put it back in his mouth. And you remember that time that he put that rock in his, he tried to put that rock in his mouth and then I took it away. Or, you know, remember that time that I came home and I, and then I gave him some food without scrubbing my hands completely and he didn't get sick. And you start to realize like, oh yeah, it's really focused on this one particular little thing here. Mm. And over time you start to recognize that. And then once you can recognize it, it just brings its power way down. So that's one thing. The second thing was um, ERP, so exposure response with prevention therapy. And that was a different type of exercise because basically with ERP, you take whatever it is that is triggering you and instead of running from it, you know, you, you, you face it, you, you turn to it and you face it. But the part that I always mention to people is that you do it in a, in a hierarchy, you do it in a ladder, right? So for example, before I had kids, one of my, uh, what I have now learned is uh, I had um, a severe, um, I had severe intrusive thoughts around suicide. Not that I wanted to kill myself, but that I was afraid I wanted to kill myself. If that yeah. makes sense. Right. Yeah. It's like so, that. It's like that feeling of like, have you ever been standing like on the roof of a really high building or like, or like at the grand Canyon? Um, and I wonder you, what it would be like if I jumped. Yeah. You, yeah. That's exactly it. it. That's exactly yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, which is very, a very fucking trippy feeling because it's, it's, it's more than I wonder what it would be like if I jumped off. It's like, I don't want to stand too close to that edge in case, in case for of- for some reason, I just jump. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, which oh, makes yeah. no fucking yeah. sense at all. Yeah. It's like that. That's yeah. not what you do as a human. Like you survive. Hey, the, yeah. the 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 compulsion to just go. Oh, I'm here. Might as well jump. Like yeah. that's yeah. that's fucking. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know. You, you are you are literally almost quoting verbatim what was going through my head when that first happened. Like, oh my mm. gosh, yeah. And the thing is, like, so that for example, that's a trigger. That's 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 a bit of a threat of like. You know, jumping off, that's a threat to my well-being, to my life. Mm-hmm. And again, a neurotypical person is going to say, like, I don't mean that, whatever. Mm-hmm. But someone with OCD is going to be like, oh, my God, I want to kill myself. I can't go near a height. I can't do this. I can't do this. And so for me, I ended up making um, it's called an exposure ladder and exposure hierarchy related to heights. Uh, so for me, it started with uh, our house had these old vines growing up the side that we needed to pull off because they just didn't look very good. And our house is a two story house. And I've never been good with step ladders because same thing. I'd get up there and I'd picture falling off. I'd be worried that I would want to jump off. So I set up an exposure hierarchy of 10 different steps of different heights that I could manage. So one was like walking across a log at this river near my house here. Another one was walking across this really high bridge. Another one was the balcony of my mom's condo. And then eventually, Mm. and I actually got my wife to take a picture of me. I got up to the top of this ladder and was pulling the vines off in the wind saying like, Oh, I feel this coming up. Oh. And I sat with it. It It's like, Oh, there it goes. Right. Mm, So that was the, that was the second thing. Um, and then the third thing, honestly, man, is just journaling about what was going on. Um, and I mentioned that when I wrote into you guys, I mean, I cannot speak highly enough of just writing out whatever is in your head, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then rereading it at some point after a couple of days of space. I, I don't know the science behind it, but there's something about it that is just so powerful. So, and and as a, as a word lover and like a, you know, an English teacher and, and, you know, a writer, like is journaling something that you already had a habit of doing before getting your diagnosis or, or was that something that you, that was new that you incorporated into your sort of daily life afterwards? 
Writing definitely was something that was regular. Uh, journaling was, I would say, an occasional thing. I typically only turned to journaling in times of really major stress. And in looking back, mm. it was some of these times when I was kind of about to bottom out with my OCD, right? Not when I had actually bottomed out. Like, um, you know, my boys being born really created a set that they didn't create it, but the circumstances, you know, flared up my OCD, OCD symptoms so much that I just couldn't manage them anymore. And in previous years, I had resorted to journaling, exercise, sleep, all those types of things to try and manage it. So I would journal on occasion, but this was the first time when I actually journaled in times of wellness and in times of ill health. Mm. And uh, I think that's a big key to it too, is that you, by journaling in times of health as well and wellness, you, you, you start to learn to recognize the differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it makes me think of, uh, I've never uh, been a journaler, but hearing you talk about it, I, 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 I can definitely imagine how, valuable it can be as an experience and it makes me think that it's it's almost sort of like I had this experience um in going to therapy over the last year where um after going to so many therapy sessions I I noticed that the sort of line of questioning that my therapist would take with me there was a moment where I was driving in my car and I was starting to feel anxious one day and I started to ask myself questions about why I was feeling anxious and I was trying to follow like the sort of like line of questioning that I thought my therapist might ask me and through sort of like having that moment of self-reflection and really trying to take a moment to like, you know, step out of my own emotional experience to, in the situation and, and think more about it, um, it, it sort of like helped me manage that anxiety as it was rising. Yeah. And I, I'm curious if like your experience with journaling, like do you sort of take an approach where you're almost, it, it, do you feel it's almost like this sort of like self therapy session in a sense? Absolutely. Yes, I do. I, and, and in the early going, um, and this is part of why I, I wrote this book and and part of uh, why I wanted to bring up the discussion about it with parenting specifically, like it, in the early going, I journaled based on CBT and ERP prompts. And, uh, and, 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 and I'm glad I did that because for the first few months when I had my boys, I was really frustrated because again, I knew something was wrong, but you're coming across these phrases, you know, and you hear them a lot in, in, in lots of different traditions, not just psychology, but it's like, you know, you are not your thoughts. I'm kind of going, okay, great. But what do you mean? Like, how, yeah. how do I, <laughs> you know, or, you know, when you can learn to say no to your anxiety and you can learn to just let it sit, all will be okay. It's like, or, or, you know, be mindful of your thoughts. It's like, I am mindful of my thoughts. They're horrible. They're terrifying. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I don't want to sit here with them. I don't want them. I want them gone. How do I get rid of them? Like, how do I make them go away? You know, all this kind of thing. And so with journaling, um, I started off writing everything out because it's always been a good way for me to figure out what I think about things. Um, I tend to do my best thinking and writing probably because it's a bit slower. My friends know that I'm notorious for like thinking out loud, figuring out what I'm trying to say as I'm talking to them. So they're kind of constantly like egging me on, like get to the, get to the point. (laughs) But, but I found that uh, with, with journaling after that, um, after those prompts, it became something where if something was really getting to me, whether it was OCD or not, you know, I, I could now sit down and say like, okay, why don't I just sit down and start writing about this to see where it goes. Um, and again, a big part of that is that you get halfway down a page and something you wrote at the start of the page, you don't have to hold it in your head anymore. So you can think about it in a new way and combine it with another idea that's now just coming out, you know? And, and so it, it very much becomes a vehicle for just exploring your mind that way. And I, for me, it's just, it's, it's very, very cool. I know it's not everybody's thing. Um, but 
that, you know, especially in the context of parenting, I mean, right away, like the parents that I've talked to since, since writing the book, and they've kind of said like, what can I do like right away? And that's a big thing because it's like, when you have kids, you don't have time to read books and books and books. You don't want to go through hours and hours and hours of research. You want something that works right away. And I've had people say to me, okay, I've gotten in touch with a therapist that's going to start soon, but what can I do like right now? kind of thing. And I would say to them, honestly, take everything good, bad, and ugly, and just write it out. You don't have to share it with anybody. You know, you don't even have, you just, you don't even have to reread it, but just start off by getting all that out. Just Mm. write, 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 write. And then maybe even just take it to your therapist and talk about it. Because what you're going to see then is again, you'll notice things that you didn't notice before. At least that was my experience. So Mm -hmm. that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great answer. With journaling, like, and in the context of the conversation we're having, but in the context also for just, for just general growth as, as human beings, I think that we can go through really long periods of time, not really recognizing that we've changed a lot. And, uh, and when you, and, and if you just read something that you wrote a year ago, it will look like another person wrote it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's because it is another person that wrote it because you are not that person Dude, anymore. That's why my favorite YouTube video right now ongoing is uh, Vanity Fair's Billie Eilish uh, oh, a yeah. year in review. It's so great, it's so good. It, she's been doing this interview, same once questions with Vanity Fair once a year uh, uh, that comes uh, out around Christmas time, and. It's it'll show her answers from all of the years before, and right. then she'll re-answer the question in yeah. the, in the uh, with her current way of thinking. And it's so like you're just seeing a person, especially at that age, grow, like seventeen yeah. to eighteen, eighteen to nineteen, nineteen to twenty. You're yeah. like, whoa, this yeah. is a very big shifts, very yeah. big life shifts. But yeah. you, but I think it, even <clears throat> even yeah, you're right. They're 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 more like they're more pronounced, they're more pronounced. obvious when yeah. you're younger. But you go through big changes in the way that you think. At at any age, I, I I believe they're just they're they might not be as obvious because you don't act on them in the same yeah. way that you might as from a younger age. But when you as you get older, just like the frame of reference through which you see the world yeah. changes and shifts, and putting that stuff down on paper, um, you know, it's very hard to revisit a thought in its truest form by remembering it. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And if, once it's down on paper, it's solidified. You've yeah. encapsulated it and I, it's very helpful to grow. I'm really uh, curious, Jason, about any kind of like stigma or misconceptions that you've kind of seen or heard specifically around uh, being a parent living yeah. with a mental disorder. Oh, yeah. So, well, I, I forget. I think. Um, I mean, I've listened to quite a few. I, I, I just absolutely love the work that you guys do, like with this podcast. And one of the ones that I was listening to, and it was so cool to hear somebody in such like a high level profession talk. So I think her name was Michelle. Uh, she was a psychiatrist who also suffered from depression. I think. Yes. Yeah. We re-released um, that episode on Christmas this year. Yeah. 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 So I, I came across that one. I thought she phrased it so perfectly. She said, um, you know, having depression is, is, is difficult enough, but it's like, wait a minute, I'm a psychiatrist. So that also, that puts the pressure on me not being mm. capable. That, mm. that makes it that much worse. That makes it that much more nerve wracking that I'm suffering from that, which I'm supposed to treat. Right. Mm. And, uh, it's like you when know, you go I, to a barber and the barber's just like this unkempt fucking like, you're like, <laughs> what the fuck's going on with your head, yeah. dude? Are you yeah. sure you're going to cut my hair? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Your pilot's going like, 
Yeah, Hawaii kind of looks like a liver, right? But, uh, but yeah, like it's um, it, it's it's one of those things. So you're you're at a point, and and I have to admit, there's there's a lot of um, guilt and shame with that stigma because you're you're at a point where you you are so utterly responsible. And I remember being mm. taken aback by that. It is like so life and death in terms of that child. That child does not eat, sleep, or stay warm unless you feed it, help it sleep, and keep it warm, mm. right? And um, it's an incredible thing. It's also a terrifying thing. And when you feel like something's going on in your mind that might make people think that you are incapable, incapable of doing that, or that someone might think like, oh gosh, are my kids going to get taken away from me if I confess that I'm struggling with mental health symptoms? Is my family going to be ashamed of me? Um, you know, all those types of things. I mean, because you have more responsibility, you feel the pressure that much more. And because mm -hmm. the stakes are so much higher, you obsess and worry about your symptoms so much more. It's mm -hmm. not unlike what I talked about before, where like, you know, when I was 10 years old, if I had heard of a war breaking out somewhere as a naive 10 year old, I mean, I would have understood that it's bad, but I don't know how much sort of, mm -hmm. you know, whole comprehensive empathy I would have had about it. Whereas now as a dad, like it really affected me a lot more, not I'm not trying to downplay anybody else's suffering. I'm just talking about like how that affected me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the stigma with it is like, it's, it, it's a time where I think as a dad, not just as a dad, but certainly as a dad, like you, you feel this pressure to be a caregiver. You feel this pressure to be rock solid. And when you're sitting there going like, I'm not, uh, there's a lot of worry out there that someone's just going to completely misinterpret that, take it the wrong way take your kids away from you, confront mm. you about it in some way that you can't handle. And there's a lot of guilt and shame around that too, because like, again, my wife was nursing twins, getting two hours of broken sleep a day. And you're also just worried about this bit of like, I'm not being a good husband. I'm not being a good father because I should be able to lick this and I can't, I should be able to force this down and I can't, you know? So there's mm. stigma as kind of a protector, a caregiver, a provider. And then there's stigma from the mental health side of things too. Even just the simple fact that, you can have mental health symptoms right around the time of having kids that something like that, that is supposed to be so joyous is actually causing um, a difficult time in your life. And that, what does that say about you as a parent? I mean, all those mm. things are out there. They're not true. Those mm. are all, you know, very hyperinflated, very irrational, distorted perceptions of everything, but they're very much out there. Mm. Speaking of, um, your wife and your relationship, you mentioned mm. earlier that when your kids were, were born, your, your wife had, had said to you sort of like, you're not your yourself right now. Um, what type of impact did your OCD have on your relationship? So one of the biggest things, remember the exhaustion bit that I mentioned before, where like at the end of a day, you're fighting down obsessions and compulsions and you're just fried, right? Well, when I was a bachelor, I could come home and lay on my couch and no big deal. Mm -hmm. When I'm taking care of a family, um, one of the biggest things that it looked like was irritability and impatience and split second, like zero to a thousand reactions, those three mm. things. So, um, you know, little, little, I mean, all, my wife, I don't want to paint any wrong pictures. My wife and I have a very healthy relationship. We're very lucky that way. But of course we have like our little disagreements and things just like anybody else. I mean, I'd react way more emotionally to those than I normally would have because my resilience was just so depleted. Mm. Stubbing my toe felt like the world was conspiring against me. Her um, not holding one of the boys while walking down the stairs in the way that I thought she should or, you know, would mm. be like, hold him. I am holding like, you know, all this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, did you clean that well enough? Like all, all, all these different types of things, uh, you know, that that's really how it manifested in the early going. Uh, and then really, um, you know, in terms of the impact on her, 
all that made it that much harder for her to have energy and resilience and happiness and be kind of up going and bouncy with all of that because she was managing again, symptoms that neither of us really understood. She was managing kind of the external manifestations of all that. And she was also taking care of the boys a lot. Mm. Right. So um, that's really how it impacted things uh, in the early going. Yeah. Mm. Was it when you went back to uh, therapy and, and your therapist gave you the book on OCD mm-hmm. um, and you started reading it, did like, uh, I'm assuming that you probably started talking to your, your wife about some of the things that you were reading about. Yeah. Um, was it, obvious right away that that the experiences in the book were sort of mirroring your own experiences <laughs> i uh I, again i know we're on camera right now i wish i could show you i mean the number of times that i wrote like yes in big letters <laughs> in the margins that's me like all this kind of stuff and i started reading some of this stuff to her and she was just going like oh my god this explains so much about you and and you know to her and, and to her credit like you know, and this is part of uh, managing OCD and a family. I mean, we we agreed very early on that it was never her job to accommodate me. It was never her job to do my therapy kind of with me or for me. And some people might think, well, then what didn't she support you? It's like, of course she supported me. And one of the biggest things was just by listening and learning about mm-hmm. OCD with me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, I've always been very grateful to her for that because she really just listened to me articulate a lot of this stuff. And with that book, as we started reading through it together, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, it was this interesting cathartic moment where my wife was kind of thinking this explains so much about you. And it was great because it's like, okay, well, if we know there's something out there about it, that means there's a pathway forward. And for me, it was this massive cathartic thing because I had always thought with what I now know as obsessions and compulsions, I always just kind of thought, well, I'm a little off mentally, I guess. And I I know this Mm. sounds terrible. And and, and again, like in my work as as a teacher, for example, I mean, I would never describe anybody like that. I never have. And I would always help others through this process uh, through a pro, you know, I would always help if it meant like, you know, re, um, just supporting in a classroom or whatever. But again, when it comes to yourself and your inner monologue, this is just what was going on in there. If I'm being honest, mm-hmm. I just thought, well, I guess this is just something that's off about me and that I manage, and everybody has their thing and this mm-hmm. is mine. So I deal with it. And then I remember having this moment, reading this book being like, wow, like this is so common that like somebody has written about it and categorized it and a publishing company thinks it's a big enough deal that they want to invest money in it. And there's medications and treatments and all this kind of stuff. And it was this big, like mind blowing thing. So was was it, what did it feel really emotional? Um, because when, when I was talking to my therapist about ADHD and then started to read more about it, I actually, there was one moment where I was reading something and, and like, I just like broke down crying because I was like, fuck, like there, this is, this is me. And I didn't know that I, 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 I didn't know that this is what I was experiencing. Um, was it emotional for you learning about that? Oh yeah. Big time. Um, and, and, and at first I will say as well, like you, you kind of have this roller coaster thing where you're like, oh my gosh, there's finally a name for this. Um, but then you have all these other thoughts that come along with it of like, how did I not know, you know, why could I have not gotten to this earlier? Why does this have to happen now? Why didn't this just go away to begin with? Um, like I, one of the writing things that I did was I wrote letters, this might sound a little weird, but like I wrote letters to myself at the start of therapy and midway and at the end and all that. And that's been really interesting to compare. And the first letter is just loaded with these thoughts of like, 
right now, I just feel like I've come to a realization of something that needs a lot of work and I have to be here for my family and I don't know how I'm going to manage both. And I, I'm happy that I have this diagnosis. Oh my gosh, I finally understand more about myself, but I also don't like what I'm finding out. So what do I do now? You know, like all those kinds of things. I mean, absolutely. You, you have such a huge Mm-hmm. combination of those things. And that's one of the reasons why, like in the book, I try and be as frank and matter of fact about, again, what, what I understand OCD to be based on my research and experience with it. Obviously I'm not a therapist and I don't claim to be, um, but I try and just phrase it very matter of factly because, you know, I made so many of those missteps along the way. I, mm-hmm. I tried self-help books that were more just generalized. I'm not knocking self-help books. I'm just saying they didn't, they, they're not designed to treat OCD. Uh, you know, and all these other things. And, um, especially as a parent, it's like, I had no more time to waste anymore. And that's really why I went to, uh, to a therapist. So very much that, but then I had to really just pair that with getting, getting, getting on with it and and figuring it out. Um, and I remember actually you mentioned breaking down, like, you know, I, I, that letter, I, I, I read the book about OCD. I wrote that letter. I went back to therapy uh, therapy session and I broke down crying reading it to my therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he kind of yeah. looked at me, he's like, that's really hard, man. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, like I, I, I really feel that, um, I had like for, for me, it's, it's been a journey of like grieving the person who I sort of thought I was in yeah. part of like the person who I am now too. And it's like, it's in one part really, amazing having a better understanding of who you are but there is this like there is and a thing I've been working on in therapy is like there's this sense of loss of like the person that you maybe could have been if you if it was treated earlier if you you know didn't have to live with this and so yeah it's like this roller coaster of emotions is is a great way to put it because I feel like it does sort of it you know they're all of the emotions are presence present in it Mm. You know, I, I remember experiencing a weird feeling of like, I, I don't know how much I want to change, even though mm. I really wanted to change. You have this feeling of like, if I'm not me, who am I? <laughs> mm. Right. If I if I'm not going to react to this, like what what's what's going to happen here? If I'm going to come out with this information, how's that? Gonna, and it does change things massively. Mm. But but again, in a good way. And that in itself is a very anxiety ridden reaction right and part of it even just comes with admitting the nature of the symptoms um like you mentioned that show where the person has a thought of stabbing their their wife i think it was Mm. um i mean there now thankfully i I, i'm very grateful that i haven't had this one but with respect to parenting i mean there are lots of parents that um become afraid to bathe their kids because they get intrusive thoughts of pushing them underwater they don't want to cook around their kids because they get intrusive thoughts of stabbing them with a knife or kicking them down the stairs or whatever it may be and again, it's the nature of intrusive thoughts that like we all have the ability to picture like the best and the worst. And the human brain has thousands of thoughts a day and those things come in and out. But for somebody with OCD, it's like the second that one pops Mm. in, you're going like, oh my God, how did I just have that thought? What does this say about me? And then you're doing everything you can to neutralize it. And in Mm -hmm. some cases that can be avoiding that which you love the most or that which you're worried about. So um, yeah, man, it's, it's this it's this very weird journey of taking things that you've known in one way your whole life and then suddenly just seeing them in a different way and it taking effort to really make that shift. It's not, it's not a light switch. And that's one of the reasons why I actually wrote a book about it. Like some people said, why not just one podcast or why not a website? And I said, because (laughs) like, it's a long journey and I wanted the medium to kind of Mm. reflect the conversation. It takes that long. So Mm. yeah, you've done a really incredible job at framing this in a way that I haven't, 
had yeah. I, I haven't looked looked at it uh, looked at it through that frame of reference before, mm. and 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 you you've done a really good job of uh, of of explaining it in of explaining it in a way that I think makes it makes it extremely accessible uh, to to. Oftentimes, it can be really, really under challenging to really understand what someone's mm. going through or has gone through by explaining it to them. Um, uh, but I think you've made that pretty as just about as accessible mm. as uh, as as you could have for for somebody who's who's never experienced, um, you know, living with OCD. Mm-hmm. Jason, what would you say is the biggest thing that OCD has taken away from you? Uh, honestly, I still look back at my first few months as a dad with a sense of guilt and frustration. Um, I, I would say that it really negatively affected my, you know, I think my, my family's experience during that time. And again, I don't want to paint like the wrong picture. I, I went to work, you know, we did the photo shoots. We had happy moments. It wasn't all misery all the time. Um, but I can honestly say that, you know, I, I wasn't happy during that time. I was suffering and it affected my family. It affected my wife. I know it did. You know, she and I have talked about this a few times in the last little while. And we've had some frank conversations about just like, I was really difficult at that time. And, and it's not, you know, it's not guilt or shaming for having OCD. It's more just being frank about the fact that like when those symptoms were at their worst, it was hard on the family. It just was. And that is something that, you know, the experience of becoming a dad, that is not at all what I expected it to be. And mm. I do still very much wish I had done better at that time, honestly. What do you feel like it's given you? You know, what's funny? Um, I would say, and this might sound strange, but honestly, I would say self-esteem is one thing. Um, again, I, I never really understood what was going on in my mind for a long time in terms of these like obsessions and compulsions and intrusive thoughts and why I reacted to things the way I did. And, you know, now I recognize these things and I have the ability to choose how to respond to them. And I came through this diagnosis and made something positive out of it. And it's kind of like, 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 bam, like take that, you know, like it, (laughs) it, it, it it feels good. And I also, um, Again, understanding, I mean, I have a, this is a, another conversation for another time, but I have a theory. I mean, OCD has been around for centuries. If you look at various forms of literature, various religious scriptures, all kinds of things like that, it presents equally. And this is something I want people to know too. It presents equally across all cultures. So whether you are from Australia, Asia, Africa, Europe, doesn't matter. It's still roughly the same percentages. Um I'm really convinced this is something that we're still just understanding in relation to its time period. And I know that this is just part of what makes me, me now. And I, I do have it under control Hmm. and I feel good about that. It's, it's one of those things where I'm kind of like, okay, like I handled something really hard. What now? And I just understand myself a lot better. I'm not ashamed of it anymore. So all Mm -hmm. those things that have come together, you know, really it's like, I think maybe I wouldn't wish OCD on anybody. I really wouldn't, but I would say that I'm just, I'm grateful for, that change that has come about because of it, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Well, again, folks, uh, the book is called OC Dad, Learning to Be a Parent with a Mental Health Disorder. Um, the book is available on your website, theocdad.ca. Yep. Um, and it looks like you can pretty much get it 
wherever you live. Um, there's lots of lots of different spots to grab it. So amen for the internet, right? I know it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, Jason, uh, really appreciate your your vulnerability and, and yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, this has been real a real treat. How can people uh, follow you and 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 kind of keep up with the the work that you do? Yeah, so I uh, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, <laughs> my friends all joke that I'm not cool enough for TikTok. I'm trying to figure that out. But, uh, <laughs> Don't worry, neither are they're, we. <laughs> they're, they're, pro- they're probably right, uh, but um, but I uh, yeah. So I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram. It's at real OC Dad, um, and so they can find me there. The website is there. I do have a blog as well. So I've just started like a ten piece like blog post called the Anxious Parenting Practicalities. So one of them that I just wrote recently on there is called like poop parenting and OCD, how to change your kid's diaper if you have contamination <laughs> obsessions, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I would mention on there is there's a lot of really good resources. So there's some good mm. fictional books out there about OCD. There's some good workbooks, some good memoirs, stuff like that. So have a look in the resources page. And those are de- and there's also a contact page. And I always tell people like, I'm so happy to talk about it because I just love what comes out of the conversations. And again, this is the conversation in the book that I wish I had had. So I just want it out there as much as possible. And if that means buying a book, great. And if it doesn't, no big deal. Just get in touch with me and talk or have a look at something on the site. Those Mm. are the best ways to do it. Well, thank you so much, dude. This has been a real treat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cheers, man. Really, really appreciate it. And I decided I love the work that you guys do. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. As always, we will be back again on Wednesday and on Friday. And uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can do that a number of different ways. The first way is you can join the conversation over on our Discord channel. It is open to the public, and we have lots of lovely conversations happening about past episodes, um, but uh, but about a bunch of other things, too. It's just a whole community of really rad folks chatting and shooting the shit, and uh, we're really grateful for everybody who's there. And if you'd like to become a part of that conversation, you can check out the Discord link in the show notes. And uh, of course, if you don't want to do that, but you do want to leave a rating and review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you can do that on your Spotify mobile app. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. Sound design for this week's episode comes to you from Donovan, the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.